Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the world of psychedelics. We're going to look at what traditionally people thought of as psychedelic use, the science behind it, as well as microdosing for performance. But before I get into that and really introduce you to today's guests, let's give another shout out to a listener who took the time to write a five-star review. Subject, wonderful combos, and this is from Joel Gwynn87. I enjoy Boomer's interview style, super humble, super curious. It makes for engaging conversations. And Joel Gwynn87, you actually make me blush, so thank you so much for that. If you're inclined, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating just with a little bit of a message. We'll read yours on the show soon. And I look forward to hearing more from you guys and getting more feedback. My guest today is the CEO and founder of The Third Wave, Paul Austin. He's an entrepreneur, public speaker, and educator, and he's founded two companies in the emerging psychedelic space. The first one I've already mentioned, but the second one is called Synthesis, which is actually here in Amsterdam. Within The Third Wave, Paul leads a team of creatives, engineers, and coaches to develop a comprehensive educational platform that serves the psychedelic ecosystem. His work has led him to be featured in BBC, Forbes, and Rolling Stone magazine. So what did Paul and I get into today? As you guys know, if you've tuned into any of the episodes in the past six months, psychedelics has become an increasingly talked about theme on the podcast. Part of that has been a result of my own exploration in this space, both with larger doses of substances and smaller microdoses. Caveat emptor here, I've done my own research, you should do your own, and going down this path is not for everyone. But I invited Paul on the show to have a really educated and science-backed discussion around psychedelics. And trust me, he didn't disappoint. We talked about psychedelics' role in ancient cultures, the research that came out of the 1960s, and what is emerging as sort of this, well, I guess you can call it third wave, if you will, in Silicon Valley and other places with the use of microdosing in performance. We talked specifically about certain psychedelics, namely MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, as well as LSD, and how they can be used both from a performance context, but also from a healing context, which I guess even if you're healing, it will contribute to performance at some point. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash the third wave, and enjoy this conversation, probably the first of many, with Paul Austin. Decoding Superhuman is all about performance optimization through health optimization. And performance can come from many avenues, 
But one of the foundational aspects that I tell people to work on first is sleep. And sleep among many high performers is elusive. It's difficult because we find ourselves working late into the night. And to say to somebody who's extremely ambitious and on this mission to stop working at 6 p.m. is categorically ridiculous. So if you want to keep working, you're on your electronics, how do you protect yourself? My favorite hedge is blue light blockers. And I've had Andy Mant on the show before, but if you go over to his company, blueblocks.com, you know that they do a lot of research on the product that they are producing. If you want a pair of oh-so-sexy blue light blockers, head over to bluelock head over to blueblocks.com, use the code DS15, and you'll get yourself a nice little discount. Let's skip to this conversation with Paul Austin. Paul, welcome to the show. Boomer. Thanks for having me on, man. I can't wait for this. This is a conversation. You and I have had multiple conversations. We have multiple, it seems like a fractal-like connection in terms of networks. But uh, this is a conversation I've wanted to have on the show for a very long time. And I'm glad that you're joining me here today to talk about a topic that needs some addressing for sure. Yeah. You know, psychedelics in particular, microdosing is one of those things that sort of entered our cultural zeitgeist the last few years. And there are a lot of people who still, you know, have questions. There's a lot of unknowns in that process because there just hasn't been a lot of education about it, you know, in the past. How did you come to this field? Because it's, I mean, originally you remind me again, where you're from. Are you from California originally? Grand Rapids, Michigan. Ah, that's not quite California. So Midwest, yeah, Midwest, <laughs> Midwest boy, guy. which I, I, I'm a Midwest boy too. And so Midwest boy, California, psychedelics, connect the dots for me. How did it eventually click for you? Yeah. So, you know, grew up in West Michigan, which is more traditional, you know, Midwest, salt of the earth type family, Mm -hmm. Um, suburb, smoked cannabis when I was 16 for the first time as sort of my initial act of rebellion. And then when I was 19, Um, started to look into psychedelics and did psilocybin mushrooms and soon after tried high, this is at all high doses, Mm -hmm. um, high doses of LSD with close friends in beautiful outdoor nature settings. And, you know, I've always been a bit of a a rebel, a bit of an outsider, a very independent thinker, you know, kind of like carving my own path, if you will. And one of the conclusions I would say the main conclusion that I came to from those high dose experiences was coming to terms with death, which sounds very, you know, odd, but this is what happens is we have this ego dissolution. We realize that death is just another step in the process of, of, of our own, you know, evolution. And that for that reason, why not live to the greatest extent possible? Mm-hmm. And so when I graduated from college at the age of 21, I moved to Turkey, where I taught English. Istanbul or somewhere else? I was in Istanbul initially for about two months. I taught at a camp, a summer camp. Mm -hmm. I taught Turkish kids how to teach English and how to play sports. Um, So basically playing sports with them through teaching English. Mm -hmm. And did that, worked at a 
private school in a, in a place called Izmir for about nine months. And in my free time, just taught myself how to build an online business. <clears throat> and then once I left that job, I took that skill, the teaching English, and I built my first coaching business online where I taught one-on-one and group classes uh, for people, you know, professionals from Japan or China or even immigrants who had already come to the United States so they could go get their MBA at Harvard so they could go, you know, go um, become pharmacists. I essentially trained them on psychology, you know, like really high-performance psychology for passing this test. And, you know, one thing led to another. That business is going pretty well. In 2015, I noticed a few trends going. Um, one trend that I noticed was cannabis was becoming legal. Um, you know, in 2015, there were about four states that had, that had already legalized cannabis. There were several more states that had medicalized cannabis. So clearly there was something going on there. Um, there was more and more research on psychedelics coming out of places like Johns Hopkins and NYU. And so I was like, there's something going on there. And then Tim Ferriss, who is really, you know, kind of a cultural star, if you will, started publishing public podcasts about psychedelics, mm-hmm. which I thought, oh, this is interesting. So in mid-2015, I started a website called The Third Wave, which was essentially an educational resource with a particular focus on microdosing that um, just helped to inform and educate people about responsible and intentional psychedelic use. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of, you know, it was initially a hobby project. I was running this coaching business as my main business. Um, the third way was a hobby project for a couple of years. And in 2017, you know, turned it into a lifestyle business. And then recently, you know, we've started to raise investment and make it a real legit business as more and more money poured into the psychedelic space. So I kind of have this interesting intersection of, um, travel, you know, I've, I've, I've traveled to about 60 countries, lived in five different countries, um, building online educational businesses. <clears throat> which is what happened with the third wave. And then I also had a brief hiatus, if you will, in 2018, uh, because in 2018, I was fortunate enough to speak at a number of tech and business conferences, the next mm-hmm. web in Amsterdam, South, a South by Southwest conference in Germany, um, another conference in Switzerland, which was like a one day self optimization conference. Um, and just notice that a lot of people who were going to these conferences, these tech and business conferences, you know, they were interested in psychedelics, but they didn't want to maybe, you know, there were a lot of concerns because it was so new. There's a lot of unknowns. So for that reason, we launched a legal psilocybin retreat center in the Netherlands called Synthesis mm-hmm. with a co-founder of mine who was Dutch and started doing retreats uh, just outside of Amsterdam with psilocybin truffles, which are legal in, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've, I started a few businesses, you know, there was an educational component to that. And now it's really like, I would say what drives me most is an awareness of the crises that we seem to be going through as a culture. Mm -hmm. Um, We have the mental health crisis. We have uh, an income inequality crisis. We have a, a meaning crisis, you know, basically an existential crisis. And what the climate crisis is, is also a big one. And I think, you know, what really motivated me about educating people about the benefits of responsible psychedelic use is these are tools that help us to wake up to these crises and understand them and feel them. And in that feeling, we then actually can start to take action on what do we need to do to address them and overcome them. And that I would say is sort of my main mission is how can psychedelics when used responsibly help with humanity kind of getting through its current period of crisis. And 
I want to go into a number of those benefits that you've laid out because I think meaning, ego dissolution, all of that existential crisis I've dealt with in a way through psychedelics, at least effectively. Before I go into kind of the the science side of things, which is what I love about the third wave, um, you've lived outside the U.S. and you said five different countries. What's your favorite one? If you had, to, I mean, I guess first off, what are the five, and then we can kind of dosey do from there. Yeah, so I lived in Turkey for a year. Yeah, and I, I know Turkey the best, I would say, because I lived there for a year. I taught at a Turkish school. I, I you know, I was close with like a Turkish family. I learned, you know, Turkish at least some Turkish. Um, so in terms of the culture that I know best, it would be Turkey. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of beautiful parts of it. There are also a lot of things that I didn't like about it, mm-hmm. but. You know, it was fantastic. I also lived in Thailand, mm-hmm. in Chiang Mai. But when I was living in Thailand, it was much more of like um, I was a digital nomad. You know, yeah. I was hanging out with other expats who were living in Chiang Mai in Thailand. It's I, a very, I, very I, I common place to do that, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, so I loved the food and I loved everything about it. But I, w- I wouldn't say I was, I was as like integrated mm-hmm. into Thailand. And then I lived in uh, Portugal, mm-hmm. in Lisbon. And... You know, Lisbon was probably my favorite, mm-hmm. uh, you know, overall, because it has the best weather in Western Europe. Yep. Um, it's on the water. All drugs are decriminalized in Lisbon and Portugal. Mm-hmm. So there's just a sense of freedom there that you don't have elsewhere. The people are very kind and warm and friendly. And the city, Lisbon itself, is going through an amazing rebirth, which it's makes amazing. it very affordable. Yeah. For, for people. So uh, lived there, lived in Mexico as well, in Oaxaca. Um, and again, food. This is this is what draws me. It's, it's food, food yeah. in Mexico, the food in Thailand. You know, it's food like in that, Portugal, that right? <laughs> in Portugal as well. And then um, I lived in um, Hungary, in Budapest, okay. for, for a short period of time as well. So those are the five foreign countries that I lived in, and I would say of those, Lisbon, you know, Portugal was my favorite, and Turkey is the one that I that I know the best. Amazing. I can second Lisbon. I haven't been to Turkey. Ironically, I've done the 60 countries thing, but I haven't been to Turkey. Uh, it's on the list. Let's go into the third wave because I came across your site because I was looking for somebody to explain the science behind all this stuff. And I know the research goes back quite a bit, but you aggregated it in such a nice way. Can we talk a little bit about the history of psychedelics, specifically from the scientific research side? Like when, when did it get started and what do we actually know? So when it comes to the history of psychedelics, you know, this is sort of where even the name, the third wave came from, Mm -hmm. right? Where there's a first wave, there's a second wave and, and there's a third wave. And the first wave was, you know, in, indigenous use for thousands of years these 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 medicines have been used since you know ancient ancient times um so that was like there's obviously a rich <clears throat> there's a rich evolutionary history and what most people don't realize is people like plato and aristotle back you know in ancient greece they were utilizing psychedelics for insight and awareness about the nature of reality mm-hmm. um, which i think is is fascinating so obviously we didn't have the scientific objective you know methods that we do now to measure that but if you read through Plato's philosophy and Aristotle's philosophy, they will refer to these experiences at the Eleusinian Mysteries, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. 
So then when it comes to the second wave of psychedelics, this is really, you know, if the first wave was ancient Greece and kind of the introduction of plant medicine into Western culture, because that was the bedrock of Western culture. Mm -hmm. Then the second wave of psychedelics was the reintroduction of psychedelics into Western culture. And that was the counterculture. That was the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And how most people know the 50s and 60s is Timothy Leary and, you know, like dropping out and sort of like kind of, you know, doing that whole crazy thing. But what most people don't realize is there were over a thousand clinical papers published on psychedelics in the 50s and 60s. And it was a highly respected and regarded sort of nascent area of research that held so much potential. But unfortunately, because specifically with LSD, it got out of control there was a huge government backlash and crackdown on psychedelics, which led to this sort of dark age period. Was it Nixon or was it somebody else that kind of put the clamp down? I'm just trying to remember who it was. It was sort of, it was, it was like a cascading effect, right? Mm -hmm. So California was really the epicenter for a lot of it, you know, the summer of love in 1966. And so initially the California, the state of California made it illegal in 1966. And then Richard Nixon came in a couple of years later with his war on drugs in 1968 and cracked down on it federally. Mm-hmm. And then in 1971, the UN passed a convention, uh, you know, an act, uh, the UN Convention Act, that basically made all psychedelics illegal globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that if anyone was to have them legal in their country, that they would be kicked out of the UN. So, and that was, of course, informed by the United States because, you know, the United States has been, especially since World War II, the predominant world power. So anything, you know, they want to see happen mm-hmm. usually has happened. Um, so that, that, you know, and a lot of the research was fascinating. It showed that LSD was super effective for depression, for, um, for autism, for uh, alcoholism was a big one, you know, mm-hmm. big, big for alcoholism and addiction. And so, you know, we basically entered this dark period. And then in 1996, there was a guy named Bob Jesse who, who started talking with Roland Griffiths. And Roland Griffiths was a highly respected addiction researcher. Uh, He's research your University of Minnesota, right? Think, or <clears throat> I could have that wrong. Ro- Roland is at Johns Hopkins. That's right. Okay. So, I, there's somebody in so there that's a Minnesota guy. but Dennis McKenna. Okay. There you go. Dennis McKenna, yeah. Um, so Roland, you know, basically like they started doing research in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then there was the first landmark paper published on psychedelics in 2006, which essentially proved that psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, when used within, you know, the right container can facilitate a mystical experience. And that happens, it's like, it's effective. It shows that if you do it this way, that 70 to 80% of people will have a mystical experience. And as a result of having a mystical experience, there are significant physiological benefits and psychological benefits, mm-hmm. um, including, you know, just more contentment, uh, a release of, you know, a, a healing of depressive symptoms, um, a sense of this being the most profound experience that one has ever, you know, gone through. There were all these things that they were starting to build the framework for. And then since 2006, there's been dozens and dozens and dozens of papers published proving the efficacy of psychedelics for treating everything from PTSD to addiction, to alcoholism, to end-of-life anxiety, to treatment-resistant depression, to major depressive disorder. Um, you know, like basically if you pick a cl- OCD, if you pick a clinical condition that you struggle with, psychedelics likely help with it, which I think is fascinating. 
Mm-hmm. And right now we kind of sit at this interesting area where you know psilocybin, I believe, is legal in Colorado, right? Um, decriminalized. Decriminalized. In okay. Decriminalized in Denver. Uh, we sit at this interesting kind of precipice, if you will, whereby MAPS is going through phase three uh, FDA trials on MDMA, I believe, for PTSD. And, you know, the future seems quite bright for psychedelic and psychedelic therapy. I mean, ketamine for depression is already being used. Um, When we look at it in terms of just, let's go down the microdosing route, because when I started investigating microdosing, actually, like I was microdosed by a friend, you know, dissolution of ego, loved it. And um, when we went down, so microdosing for performance, when did this start to become a part of the picture? And because I know you were one of the first people publishing on it and how to do it. When did it start becoming part of the picture? And maybe we can start getting into tactically how people can use it and what the benefits are. Yeah. So what's fascinating is, is sort of the, again, I, I studied history in college. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm a history buff. I'm a you, history you and me both, study. man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, all these, so I think context is so important and so useful to explain, yeah. you know, current trends that are going on. So, you know, most people at this point have heard the Steve Jobs quote, mm-hmm. you know, that Walter Isaacson wrote in his biography. And Steve Jobs essentially said that like doing LSD was one of the most profound things that he ever did. Um, top two or three profound things he ever did that it basically helped him to see things from a totally different perspective and that he was totally different ever since that point. Mm. Um, And so there's a rich history because a lot of the initial psychedelic research was in Menlo Park, you know, which is in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Then the tech world and the psychedelic world, the the use of psychedelics in the 50s and 60s is sort of what inspired, you know, the the tech boom in the 70s, 80s and onwards, the whole computer revolution. Um, so I think that's the first key point to look at. It's like engineers and scientists and developers and whatnot, they've been, we've been using LSD for 50 years to help with creativity and performance and leadership. It's just been under the cover. Yeah, right? of course. It's been kind of a, a, a trade secret of what's going on mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. And then, you know, in 2012, Jim Fadiman published a book called the psychedelic explorers guide. And Jim was, one of the researchers from the 60s who, you know, he basically did the only research study proving that LSD helps with creativity. So he took in a number of engineers in 1966, about 25, put them through a study where they took, they took about 100 micrograms of LSD and he had them come in with a big problem that they wanted to solve, that they were struggling with. And essentially he published this entire paper proving that, look, LSD helped with coming up with all these innovative solutions. And this is back in 1966. And then so, while he was in the middle of doing that study, he gets, a, he gets a letter from the federal government saying, hey, LSD is illegal, immediately sees everything that you're doing. And he tells a story of like, he gets the letter and he had just dosed everyone. <laughs> so he's, like, he's like, I got this letter tomorrow and continued with the experience. And then after that point, you know, LSD was illegal and couldn't be used. So that was sort of like, so Paul, just real quick for perspective on people, hundred micrograms of LSD um, versus, you know, what are we talking about in terms of micro versus larger dose here? So a moderate dose is a hundred micrograms. A micro dose is about 10 micrograms. Okay. 
Perfect. Approximately, you know, so a microdose is about a tenth of a regular dose. Got it. Is what, is what we're looking at. So you have that rich history. And then, you know, Jim published this book in 2012, had a single chapter on microdosing. And then Jim was on the Tim Ferriss podcast in 2015 and spoke about microdosing. And then that's when we started to see this really come out. There was a couple, there was a piece published in Rolling Stone, you know, a piece published elsewhere. There were like, oh, Silicon Valley engineers and recent scientists are like, microdosing for performance and creativity and ever since then it sort of like blew up and 2015 was when i first heard about it and because i had had these high dose experiences before that were really profound for Mm -hmm. a week or two after i did high doses it was always like things felt easy in my life i was disciplined i would go to the gym consistently i would eat much healthier i would treat people around me with much more compassion and interest and openness and then eventually after one or two weeks, some of those things would dissipate. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I wonder if I microdose, it's a way to continue to integrate and just maintain that level of presence mm-hmm. with everything and mindfulness with everything. So I think, you know, what's really going on at the fundamental level with microdosing is just like meditation, just like breath work, just like yoga. It's just helping us to be more present. It's helping the hemispheres in our brain to, you know, the, the two hemispheres to communicate in a better way. It's helping us to generally just be more healthy and well. And then when we're more present as high performers, then it becomes easier to be creative, right? Because we're not sort of in this anxious, sympathetic state, Mm -hmm. but we can actually drop back and relax into a parasympathetic state and respond to things and be creative from that position. And then with creativity comes flow and productivity and all these other sort of things that people will often read about with microdosing. But at the fundamental level, it's presence, it's mindfulness. And, and then it's just sort of the, the benefits build on top of that. Mm-hmm. So the presence in mindfulness, and my understanding is a lot of this comes from shutting down of the default mode network, um, or at least sort of working through the ego. But um, it, why don't we go a little bit into like, just tactically, if somebody wanted to start microdosing, what does that actually look like? Because I live here in Amsterdam, there are certain substances that are traditionally available to me, think every stereotype you have, that aren't necessarily available to those living outside of the Netherlands. But one of those substances which is now available worldwide, legally, is truffled mushrooms. And these are from a company called Provathor. Provathor was founded by a lovely lady named Lily, whom I've come to know very well. And if you want to try truffled mushrooms, which have been effectively batched in microdoses for you, you can head on over to provathor.com. And yes, they do deliver worldwide legally. And you can use the code BOOMER, that's B-O-O-M-E-R, for a nice little discount. Enjoy your experience with that. And let's get back to my conversation with Paul Austin. Uh, because, for instance, right now, I, I mean, between us and whoever's listening to this, I have microdose on psilocybin mushrooms, right? And so, you know, I'm enjoying that. But it, tactically, how would people start to get into this or how would they explore this space if you were to recommend a way? So, so one are the risks. Yeah, so I think of yeah. Let, let's those, let's lay out the risks and just addressing like, those up front. <laughs> fully disclose we, everything, right? 
will be good. And then I, and then I can just give all the information there. So the, the, the main risk is that these substances are still illegal. In yeah, places, of course. Right. So, um, you know, the Netherlands is an exception because there's psilocybin truffles. Um, but generally like LSD and, and, and mushrooms are illegal. So, so just so people have that framework. Mm-hmm. Um, the other risk to be aware of is specifically with LSD. And we could talk a little bit more about this, the difference between LSD and mushrooms, because that's often a big question as well. Mm-hmm. But with LSD, LSD is more dopaminergenic. So there's more dopamine mm-hmm. going on. And that's why it can be useful for, for very useful for flow states and productivity, just like caffeine and coffee. But if someone already struggles with anxiety or they have insomnia, or they generally tend to be a pretty high strung person, LSD might just make that worse. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also something to be, to be mindful of. So, um, so how, with that, yeah, go ahead, Paul, I interrupted you. Well, with, with that being said, and then we can kind of dive deeper, you know, the basic logistics of getting started with microdosing are to start low and go slow. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd like to say. So with LSD, you know, a typical microdose is 10 micrograms. And the best place to start is probably start at five micrograms, then seven and a half micrograms, then 10 micrograms, then 12 and a half micrograms, then 15 micrograms. And of course, what we're doing through this process is we're titrating. Yeah. You know, we're titrating our dose level to understand, particularly both from a data-driven perspective, maybe through, you know, blood tests, through the aura ring, through other methodologies that we can use through data, how useful it is, but also just an intuitive sense. Like, does this feel right? Is this giving me the energy I want? Am I a little too anxious? You know, just like starting to develop that relationship mm-hmm. with it to understand how it impacts us. So I think that's always the best way to start with mushrooms. It would be something closer to probably 0.05 grams. So 50 milligrams of psilocybin, hundred milligrams of psilocybin, 150 milligrams of psilocybin. And, um, <clears throat> usually what I will do when I'm microdosing psilocybin is I'll combine it with lion's mane and niacin. Mm-hmm. Um, this is called the Paul Stamets stat, stat yeah. because lion's mane and niacin are both neuro, uh, lion's mane is also uh, neuroprotective and helps with neurogenesis, mm-hmm. just like psilocybin does. And so that's a useful stack. I've also microdosed psilocybin mushrooms with ashwagandha mm-hmm. uh, because it's an adaptogen. It just helps with maintaining a sense of balance um, throughout the day. So, yeah, I think those are probably the best things to be aware of when it comes to, to starting with micro. So, I guess maybe I should have done this earlier, but laying out the cast of characters when it comes to microdosing, we have LSD and psilocybin predominantly. Are there other ones that you also consider worth exploring in the world of microdosing? So, I think two, two substances to be very mindful of, specifically because they can be easier to purchase are 1P LSD, yeah. which is a very close cousin to LSD. And that can be purchased through like the clear web. You need Bitcoin, but you can purchase it through the clear web on um, uh, through Canada. And then there's another substance called 4ACO DMT, which is a psilocybin analog. And same sort of situation. It's very similar to psilocybin, but you can purchase it from, from Canada. So I would say those are two things to be mindful of. The other thing that people should be mindful of is mescaline. Yeah. Uh, mescaline is uh, from the cacti. It's the psychoactive component in cacti, both San Pedro and peyote. And I think one of the fascinating elements of psychedelics, both with high doses and micro doses, is its anti-inflammatory properties. And we mm-hmm. know that inflammation is more or less the key thing that's tied to longevity. 
Mm-hmm. So if you can keep inflammation reduced, as this is why omega threes are so important. This is why you know minimizing vegetable oil intake is so important. This is why you know getting tons of sunshine is so important. So microdosing is just another way, and mescaline is the most anti-inflammatory of all the psychedelics. And so that's also something to be mindful of when microdosing is it's probably if you can find it, mescaline is the ideal way to microdose. Okay, and. I guess in terms of ranking priorities or maybe going through those cast of characters and saying, what are sort of the chief benefits? You mentioned mescaline as being the anti-inflammatory. LSD, I've looked at as more of a dissolution of ego. Are there additional things that, you know, for instance, LSD, psilocybin have their own properties, additional benefits for each of those that you wouldn't mind highlighting? For psilocybin and LSD in particular? Yeah, psilocybin and LSD. We can go into the other ones as well. So benefits, I would say, again, all of them, they just help with cultivating more presence. I think LSD is more useful for flow states, Mm -hmm. for hiking, like going outside and like having a lot of energy. If you want to go for a long hike or walk, Mm LSD is really good for that. For jujitsu or any sort of physical exercise, LSD will be really, really good for that. Um, potentially for like, um, you know, if there's any sort of intense endurance sports, LSD would be really, really good for that mm. as well. Um, Cross country skiing or even snowboarding, or again, you get, you need to know your substance before you start doing it. Yeah. But like if you titrate it appropriately and you understand how it's going to affect you, I think LSD is best for that. Psilocybin is, is more best for like emotional processing and the development of intuition, you know, because it's psilocybin is more serotonergic, it's tied to contentment and ease and peace. So, you know, when I would microdose with psilocybin, I would often do it in conjunction with therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a therapeutic perspective, it just helps with talking about emotions, it helps with opening up emotions and, and dealing with emotions. So I find that's usually the the frame of reference that I use. Now, I will say, and I think this is this is really good for me to share with the audience, is when I first started microdosing in 2015, I microdosed LSD for seven months. I did it twice a week. And that's something important to emphasize with microdosing. It's usually done once or twice a week mm-hmm. for a period of anywhere from 30 to 60 days, tracking and measuring from day one to day 30 or 60, the impact that it has on your overall baseline, mm-hmm. quantitatively and qualitatively. Um, and when I first started microdosing, it was with seven months. It was for seven months. It was twice a week. It was anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20 micrograms. I would sort of experiment and play around with the different level, levels. And it was very useful. But when I moved to New York soon after that, I had to stop microdosing with LSD. I could only microdose with psilocybin from time to time because the energy was too intense in New York. And in fact, nowadays... Like where I'm at currently, I've cut out all coffee. I don't drink coffee anymore mm-hmm. um, because it is so stimulating. And I also don't really microdose LSD anymore. The only thing that I'm microdosing nowadays is psilocybin mushrooms, particularly because I noticed that LSD was leading me to be in a more anxious state, mm-hmm. a more like really driven state. And I just needed time to like chill out and psilocybin mushrooms with these other like plant medicines, whether it's lion's mane or ashwagandha or or whatever, ginseng, or you name it. There are going to be a ton of botanical formulations that start to come out. Can we go? Uh, I, just I, I want to go deep on the cacao because I've played around with this one. What were you, what was your experience with psilocybin plus cacao? That was... 
Well, cacao is really known as like a more of a heart opener, yeah. right? It's a, it's a, it's an empathogen, if you will. And I've done cacao ceremonies in the past where it's not, I mean, it has a little bit of psychoactivity, but it's not obviously like super psychoactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just noticed that it just helped more with sort of the heart opening, the sensitivity, you know, the compassion, so, sort of those elements. Whereas when I microdose psilocybin with lion's vein and niacin, it's a bit more cerebral on the, the, the cognitive, you know, part. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk about the importance of set and setting with not just microdosing, but we'll probably transition back into larger doses here. Uh, when you're doing this, I mean, obviously you can use it in a work setting to a certain extent, you know, legal disclosures aside, but when you're doing this, what's, what kind of setting do you have? You mentioned earlier psilocybin in therapy, but also are you using these in meditative states? Are you using these predominantly as a work catalyst? How are you using them? Yeah. So what's the intention going in to mm-hmm. this? And, and, and intention is so important because, you know, psychedelics are known as nonspecific amplifiers. In other words, you know, they're just going to amplify how you're already feeling before you take them. Mm-hmm. So if you're feeling very anxious and you go take a high dose of a psychedelic, it's just going to make you way more aware of how anxious you are. And sometimes that's useful, right? Because sometimes it's like the only way out is through, mm-hmm. which, which is why these high doses are useful because they get you to face whatever you're dealing with. Um, but when it comes to performance, you know, how I use it nowadays is just like, I, I tend to have some sort of structure for my day. I am at the moment, you know, in a very intense work period and probably will continue to be for the next five to six to seven years. Mm-hmm. As I really build sort of, um, you know, my legacy and, and profession. And so typically when I'm microdosing, um, it's just like a normal work day. It's, it's usually the psilocybin lion, vein and niacin stack. It doesn't, you know, there's not anything specifically that I'm doing. Some Sometimes it'll be like a work day where I'm, I have more writing to do because mm-hmm. it can just help with the flow state of really getting getting into it to a writing mode. Um, sometimes though, I'll microdose and go hiking uh, with my business partner or with you know potential investors or with people we might collaborate with, um, and that's just a way to like you know microdosing can also just help with taking a step back, you know, having perspective on things, looking at things from a wider angle, talking about some of the high level creative brainstorming elements. So it really just depends on what you want to do with it. You know, another thing that I will often do is I will microdose before I do any public speaking mm-hmm. uh, because microdosing can help with articulation and when it helps with articulation, it just, I can communicate more clearly and effectively the, the message that I want to share with everyone. So that's, what's so great about it. It can be used for various purposes, but the set and setting is important in terms of the intention that you're putting into it. And so it's really important, I think, anytime someone is microdosing, just to take a few minutes to journal beforehand and just clarify, like, why am I doing this? What's my intention for the day? Where am I going with this? And that just helps with just like visualization is a really effective way to like do things. Microdosing with visualization is an even more effective way to, to set that attention. Mm-hmm. You work with a number of high performers in doing these types of activities. And not disclosing anybody's name, obviously, but I would love to hear about some of the successes you've, you've seen with them, but also what are you tracking along the way in terms of like, to, to just ensure that the benefits to the physiology are actually there? Is it all heart rate variability or are there other things as well? 
So in terms of, you know, some of the clients that I've worked with, it has been, you know, there's been some that have been exclusively microdosing, a few, but what they tend to be more of is those who go through a high dose experience and then need help with the integration process afterwards and want to utilize microdosing as part of their integration protocol to continue to step into their new sense of self, if you will. So when that occurs, you know, we're both looking at quantitative and qualitative things. So, mm-hmm. you know, with any coaching process, it's where are you now? Yep. Where do you want to go? What's the gap in between? And how can I, as a coach, help you get from point A to point B? So, you know, for some people, for a lot of people, it's just like, especially for leaders, it's how can I show up more consistently and more often as my best self? Mm-hmm. And how I define that is how can I show up more often in a parasympathetic state, rested and regulated, so I can respond to chaos and, and adversity that is so prevalent from a leadership position. So, you know, when we're looking at what different measurements that we're taking as a result of that, um, one is definitely going to be sleep quality, mm-hmm. right? Which is where the aura ring comes into place because the number one key to being in a rested and regulated state is, you know, deep sleep and probably REM sleep as well to help with kind of creativity and memory and whatnot. So heart rate is always, or not heart rate, but, um, but um, heart rate variability is a part of that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more expansive than that and just looking at general sleep quality is always the number one thing. Typically with high-performing executives, there's an element of, they don't sleep well. You know, there's a sense of burnout. There's a sense of too much going on. There's not being able to really down-regulate. There's not being able to really drop into a parasympathetic state. So that always has to be sort of the the key North star for anyone that I'm working with is how can psychedelics help help us stay in a regulated state more often. Um, and then you have other things as well. You know, there's there's blood tests that we can do and biomarkers that we can look at that look at inflammation mm-hmm. and, you know, how inflammation is going on. I think that's another key, key indicator is inflammation. High inflammation is a sign of not being so healthy. Low inflammation is usually a sign of being in a rested and regulated state more often. Um, exercise is another one, you know, making sure that there's consistent exercise going on is going to be key and how, how, you know, microdosing can help with just general motivation and building new habits. Because that's a big thing with psychedelics is because it interrupts the default mode network and makes it easier for the two hemispheres of the brain to communicate with each other. Um, it, that that's a key, you know, it's opening this window of neuroplasticity, which makes it much easier to new, integrate new ways of being. And that's what's so great about microdosing after a high dose is when we have this high dose ceremony, we really oftentimes start to feel into what it means to be at our best. Mm -hmm. And then when we get back into everyday life, there's work and there's family and there's relationships and there's distraction and there's triggers and there's things that draw us back into who we were before. And a key component with microdosing is let's keep that window of neuroplasticity open longer so you continue to integrate new habits that support that new sense of self that you want to embody as a leader in a high and so typically that means meditating more often, having a breathwork practice, maybe doing yoga, going to the gym consistently, eating healthier, potentially a ketogenic diet or a paleo diet. You know, there are all these things. And then when I'm working with a client, it's just like, what's going to be most useful and most effective for you with where you're currently at and what, what your skill set is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've mentioned, inter- you mentioned integration. I want to come, you did a good job of explaining that. Now, uh, some of the larger doses and experiences that people go through. I realize this kind of depends on which psychedelic you choose, 
But when you're guiding a high performer through this, and we can choose whichever psychedelic you'd like, the higher doses, um, what, what types of experiences do people typically go through? With higher doses? Yeah. The full range of human experience. <laughs> from, from, um, yeah, I, I should know, speak like, from my own experience. It is pretty wide ranging. <laughs> from like, like the most harrowing uh, of experiences where you just, you experience the world suffering and the immensity and totality of that to the most blissful, joyful, incredible, you know, experience of being one with everything, Mm -hmm. you know, and being one with, with creation and being one with the universe and, you know, like just full bliss, full love. And then, and then the specific experiences kind of go in between that. And there are people who, who you will experience, you know, like I recently did three grams of mushrooms and I experienced the totality of that as well. I experienced the immense suffering that humanity is going through and everything that's going on right now with the coronavirus and, you know, the climate crisis and all that, and just felt that and how like intense it is and how real it is. And I also felt how grateful I was for like, just being here and being alive and existing and getting to like play and and talk and be in relationships and do all these beautiful things with life. And then the, the emotions that come with that, the anger, the sadness, the joy, the suffering, the bliss, the awe, the, the reverence, the whatever else it is, it's really psychedelics just allow you to experience the totality of a human, the human condition mm-hmm. within, um, within a safe container. Yeah. And that's the key to this, right? You can't fully experience that range unless you feel safe, yeah. unless you feel like you can totally release, let go be vulnerable, you know, and just like submit and surrender. And I feel like that's a huge, huge part of having a successful quote unquote successful psychedelic experience is you just have to surrender Mm -hmm. to whatever emotions are coming up. So some of the personal things that have come up, I I can share from my own experiences, like looking at external validation and the need for that growing up and dealing with it within a psychedelic experience that was profound in some ways, but I mean, you've seen a lot more different types of people. What are the wide range of issues that people have been able to deal with effectively and maybe very quickly through psychedelics? So some of the things that we already spoke about, right? Mm -hmm. Like we could map them to clinical conditions, Mm -hmm. like PTSD or addiction or depression or anxiety, you know, like super, super useful for that. But I think there's obviously something underneath that. Yeah. And underneath that is a lot of people go through what, what are called adverse childhood experiences, yep. ACEs. And adverse childhood experiences, you know, there's been, there, there's a great book called Your Body Keeps the Score yeah. or The Body Keeps the Score, which goes into uh, by a guy named Bessel van der Kolk, um, that goes deep into this about how adverse childhood experiences then impact and affect our, our growth as adolescents and, and early adults. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work that happens with psychedelics is healing from those early adverse childhood experiences. And we pretty much, I mean, there are people who go through significant ones, which are traumatic, very traumatic, which is what leads to PTSD, depression, anxiety, um, alcoholism, addiction are usually the case. And then, you know, for someone like me, I, I had, to be honest, I was very fortunate to have a very good childhood, you know, up until the age of 12, I was, everything was love and great. And I had a great, I had great parents, great sisters, great upbringing, you know, everything I needed, food, all the good things. But I still experienced my own 
trauma was when I was 10 or 11, I was basically rejected by my entire peer group yeah. for being who I was. And so basically my process of psychedelics and overcoming that was like being able to love myself again for who I was and healing from that core wound. Cause we all have these core wounds, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what psychedelics do is they just help us to forgive ourselves and, and kind of have that sense of incompassion or whatever, a lot of self-love mm-hmm. and, and, and the, and the, the love, I know this is sort of, we're getting maybe slightly into woo-woo, but, but the, I would say the compassion for oneself and the love for oneself is the key component of all of this mm-hmm. and understanding that regardless of how odd we might be, how weird we might be, the things that we don't like about ourselves, loving every part of who we are, both the beautiful parts and all the broken parts, that's where like the healing comes in, mm-hmm. is being comfortable with loving every part of who we are. So you've got some experience with this, right? And you've gone through a few journeys, I imagine, that have brought you to this point. Is there a running average of, let's say, how many journeys it takes before somebody starts experiencing a healing process? Or is it to each their own? As in, it could be one, it could be five, et cetera. If the individual is working with the right, the the correct healer, if they're in the ideal set and setting and container, it should be the first experience every time. Um, If it's not the first experience every time, then something wasn't done right. Mm-hmm. I, 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 like either it wasn't the correct um, substance that was used. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the correct level of substance that was used. It wasn't the right healer to be doing it with. Um, the set and setting or the container wasn't tight enough mm-hmm. and safe enough for the person to be able to surrender. Um, the preparation maybe wasn't effective enough. But if, if all those things line up, they're prepared adequately, the set and setting is ideal, the container is tight, it's the right substance, it's the right level of substance, then with that first experience, there should always be a healing process involved. Mm-hmm. Um, always. Frequency for high doses. Is there such a thing as too much? Because I've met people who have gone down this path and it almost seems like it could be an addiction if you one were to look at it from an outside perspective so instead of it's less of an addiction and more of a disassociation gotcha so so when when people are continually going back into the high doses of medicine it's essentially a sign that they are attempting to disassociate from the reality around them Mm -hmm. because it's too difficult to face so the analogy that i will often use when describing like how often should we do this stuff it's like going to the dentist right every six months typically we go to the dentist, you know, we get a deep clean, you know, they check to make sure all our teeth is good and they wash everything out. And then we go home and every day we floss, every day we brush our teeth and every day we use mouthwash, whatever it is that, that we do. So when we look at high dose psychedelic experiences, high dose psychedelic experiences are like going to the dentist. It's like getting the deep, deep clean mm-hmm. and then microdosing or yoga or meditation or breath work or whatever it is. That's the flossing. That's the brushing your teeth. That's the consistent practice, the maintenance modality. That's really going to help you to maintain a, a, that parasympathetic state mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. So as a leader and high performer, it's, you're more creative, you're more productive, you're more in flow. It's easier to respond to difficult situations, you know, things like that. 
breathwork, you've mentioned it a couple of times. What modality do you use or teach your clients? So the one that I, I haven't specifically started working with clients with breathwork, I, I want to start to use that, but I've been really getting used to it myself. I typically would just do a traditional Wim Hof okay. breathwork in the morning with a little bit of yoga. So essentially, you know, like deep belly breaths up to the, the head and in and out, in and out 30 or 40 times, breathe out, breathe in, repeat, mm-hmm. and then go into a little bit of yoga to stretch. And then that's about it. Okay. Two things we haven't mentioned, and I know we're coming up on time here, two things we haven't really mentioned. We've focused a lot on LSD and psilocybin, but we haven't really spoke that much about MDMA or ketamine. Um, do you mind just touching on MDMA, maybe as a microdosing substance, but I'm more interested as to what's going on on the scientific side with MDMA on the larger doses? Yeah. So when it comes to microdosing, we generally recommend that people do not do a microdosing regimen with, with MDMA. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's because it's an amphetamine as well. Okay. And so it can be slightly addictive, whereas LSD and psilocybin are, are anti-addictive. Mm-hmm. You cannot become addicted to them. So that's one thing to be mindful of. So when it comes to high doses of MDMA, you know, the technical term for them is an empathogen because they really help to open the heart yeah. and empathy and compassion. And so it really looks like, you know, MDMA is good for two specific use cases. One is healing trauma, uh, specifically acute trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why it's so useful for treating PTSD is because normally with PTSD, when war veterans, for example, come back and they try to talk about, you know, these experiences that have happened to them as a, as a catharsis to get it out. They can't talk about it because their amygdala tightens up so much. Mm-hmm. Their fear-based response gets so tight. And what happens when you take MDMA and psilocybin, but specifically MDMA, is it loosens up the amygdala really well. So you can talk about these really traumatic experiences without becoming overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one good use case for it. The other great use case for it is in relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's often times when we're in close relationships with people in our lives, we get sort of in the head and we get back and forth about logic and rational and I'm right and you're wrong and, uh, you know, and what MDMA does is it just helps us to realize that's just a story we're telling ourselves. We're here. We're connected. You know, our hearts are open. I've done MDMA with my business partner. It's been incredibly useful. Mm-hmm. You know, I think MDMA in, for example, executive teams or leadership retreats or whatever else will be so, so useful for facilitating better communication, mm-hmm. especially when things get stuck, you know, with people. Um, it's also great for for romantic relationships and personal relationships, you know, just sometimes after we've been dating or married someone for a long period of time, things can get stale or, you know, there's 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 separation and distance that starts to occur and MD, doing MDMA in a, I don't know, maybe every six months to a year as a, like a relational ritual, I think is very useful just to like reconnect and rebond about, you know, what matters most, which is the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, MDMA for me, and I wouldn't say it was necessarily a PTSD incident, but uh, MDMA for me was profound. Again, set and setting, I had a therapist with me and it was just first time, boom, opening up so much stuff, but extremely, extremely effective. Um, Let's talk about ketamine because ketamine right now, you can go and get it in depression clinics. How do we look at this in terms of, you know, I guess microdosing, but also larger doses? So again, ketamine, I just, I, I, 
like it could be a potential good replacement for traditional pharmaceuticals from a microdosing perspective, yeah. but be, it, it also is addictive. So I think microdosing ketamine and MDMA be very cautious. I think it's always better to microdose psilocybin mm-hmm. as a starting point. Um, ketamine, you know, again, as a, as a methodology for treating depression, it's legal. So there are, there are, there are dozens and probably hundreds of ketamine clinics that are open in the United States and Canada. And there are dozens and hundreds more that will be open very soon. Um, ketamine is a technically a disassociative. Uh, it has an amazing process of just cutting out the ego completely. Uh, and so you kind of exist in this weird in-between hyperspace mm-hmm. area. Um, it lasts only 45 minutes to an hour usually. So it's much quicker than, than typical psychedelics. And the best use of ketamine is with body work. Mm-hmm. Um, where with ketamine, and actually I just had this about a week ago and it was, I did a two hour body work session with ketamine and Mm-hmm. And sorry, I, like you got the reaction with me because I was like, somebody else has told me this recently and I'm trying to figure out who it was. Um, was it Dave Burns? It may have been actually. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Cause Dave was the one who, Dave was the one who hooked it up for me. Oh, fair enough. I, it, it, if it, Dave it, is it listening to this, I'm going to, I'm going to call you and make you hook it up. Um, as yeah. Well. yeah. Um, and what happens is like, again, we store so much trauma in our somatic body. Mm-hmm. And it's not conscious, it's subconscious and unconscious. And so if working with a great body worker who really understands all like where we hold this stuff, then ketamine just allows the ego to get out of the way, all the resistance to get out of the way. So you can just be like a, an open canvas. And then it's really easy to start to dig in from a body work perspective to like loosen up all these aspects of who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it was basically like doing a two hour body work session was like a week of plant medicine. Wow. It, it was that effective in terms of the shift that happened after that. Shit. That's amazing. And so I think that's another, like when, when, you know, the people who are listening to this podcast, when we look at most effective modalities for catalyzing shifts and change in a short period of time, ketamine with body work is one MDMA with a certified therapist is another. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we haven't talked about yet is ayahuasca but that's a whole nother conversation, which we won't get. We, we, won't we get may, we may have to do that as a part two, because that's, a, I think that's going to be a part. Two. Yeah. That'll, that'll be a part two. Um, and that, and then I think microdosing, mm-hmm. you know, on an ongoing basis as largely an anti-inflammatory um, supplement mm-hmm. is also really, really useful. So I think that that's what I'm looking at, like these different combinations. Um, and that's, what's so great about psychedelics is it's not just about the psychedelic. It's about what lifestyle change or what other modality, whether it's yoga or breath work or body work or meditation or whatever else, how can you combine that with ketamine or MDMA or psilocybin? Because again, these psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers. So they just open up. They make it much easier for you to adapt and change. They really, really help with adaptability. And then if it's done within another container, another modality, it's like the synergistic effect that really helps with shifting things very quickly. Amazing. Uh, Before we go into the final few questions that are more rapid fire, in terms of resources for people, aside from your own website, which we'll talk about in a little bit, what types of, what books do you recommend people delve into for this? Jim Fadiman's The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide is usually the first one that pops up. 
I think it's it's, it's well written. It's it's pragmatic. Um, it's concise. There's some great stories. It gives the whole lens of set and setting and how to use it responsibly. There's a section on microdosing. Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind yeah. is is fantastic. New York Times bestseller, top ten book of 2018, um, and gives the most in depth perspective of where psychedelics currently stand, what the research is, why it's so useful, why it's so important. And then another book is called um, Consciousness Medicine by Francoise Borzat. Mm. Francoise is one of the five guides who is working with the FDA right now to develop clinical standards and guidelines for the use of psychedelics in a, in, in, in a, in a clinical way. And she wrote a book which is basically now the go-to reference for how to guide psychedelic experiences. And I think it's a really good read for anyone who's looking at preparation, experience, and integration and how it relates to the physical body, the mind, the emotional body, um, connection to community. You know, there are a few other elements of that as well. Amazing. Paul, this has been a just amazing education over the past 50 minutes. And I think we need to transition just because cognizant of time here into some final questions, but I, I would love to have you back for a round two, perhaps when I'm in California, we can do it in person. But um, first question is, is what book has had the most impact on your life and how you live it? Walden by Henry David Thoreau. Ooh, good. That's such a good one. Wow. That's a great one. How do you, and you may be biased here, uh, how do you enhance your focus? By resting. Hmm. What What excites you the most about the health world right now? personalized medicine and the transition from um, the, the patient doctor relationship to person-centered healthcare, where we can finally have our own, all of our own agency and power back in our hands to make ideal decisions for what, what we need as individuals. Boom. Love that. Love that. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the third wave, et cetera? So our website is thethirdwave.co. So thethirdwave.co. Um, my personal website is paulaustin.co. I like these, these CO. Um, the retreat center that I started, which is based out of the Netherlands, and if people go there, let them know that, that I sent you, is synthesisretreat.com. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's higher doses. And then, um, you know, I'm on Twitter and on Instagram at paulaustin3. W. So Paul Austin 3W is where you can find me on the socials. Amazing. The show notes for this one are going to be at decodingsuperhuman.com slash third wave. Paul, thank you for this amazing education. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thanks for having me on the show, Boomer. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an epic day. Like I said, this is probably the first of many conversations with Paul. It was so wide-ranging. We went from ancient Greece to large doses of psychedelics to microdoses of psychedelics from mescaline to LSD to MDMA and then back again. And there are many things we didn't cover. (laughs) 
candidly, we didn't even get into ayahuasca. And so there's room for a round two, but I want to hear what you guys thought of the episode. Share what you learned on the social medias. Tag at Decoding Superhuman and I'll reshare it. But it'll also let me know what you guys are picking up from this. If you feel so inclined, head over to iTunes and rate the show five stars. If you leave a little comment, I'll read it on the show soon. But these ratings are so, so important, and I'm grateful for every one of them. The show notes for this one, again, are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash the third wave. And I hope you all have an absolutely epic day. Choose health.